Hey, what's going on? Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at The Athletic, here with you for the next couple of hours. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Drancer remains on the road. I am coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Get your thoughts in now. Uh, Drancer, I mean, I I, want to start off, I guess, again, extending congratulations to Daniel and Hendrick Sedin, Roberto Luongo, all three officially inducted. Of course, former Canuck greats officially inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame last night. Fantastic ceremony, unsurprisingly excellent speeches from all three of them. And it feels like, you know, we all took a break last night to celebrate some of the Canucks past. And and now we're going to get back to our our regularly scheduled Canucks drama after that little interlude at the Hockey Hall of Fame last night. Yeah, although can we just live there for a little while longer? My goodness. I mean, it was nice. It felt really good, huh? It was awesome. And just so good to remember what this franchise can be and and to talk about good memories collectively with folks uh you know whether it was on group chat or or listening listening to my listening reading my twitter feed and just seeing you know everyone remember some guys remember some good memories remember what it's like to cheer for this team when things aren't terrible every day and repetitively terrible um you know, it can be better than this. It should be better than this. There's actually no reason for this. And I think it was enjoyable for Canucks fans to revel in that, to, to take a break from the, you know, mundane, banal <laughs> grind that every Canucks season has been for certainly the last three years and realistically for for most of the last 10. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I it, I really felt a sense of joylessness in Canucks online space. Or sorry, I really felt a sense of joyfulness in Canucks online spaces yesterday as the evening played out. Uh, uh, just a, a sense of relief that there was something to be proud of in, in regards to the Vancouver Canucks franchise. And to be fair, I do think as much as there was that joyfulness, there's also kind of an inevitable bittersweet taste to it, right? Because it's impossible to completely silo you know the celebration of the past away from what we are seeing play out in the present what we have been seeing out uh seeing play out you know as you said for most of the last decade you kind of inevitably your mind wanders from the celebration uh to the the stark stark contrast uh, with what we're seeing day in day out week in week out etc etc with the current iteration of the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Yannick Hansen will join us a little later in the show. So, of course, uh, we'll, we'll get his reaction to seeing three of his former teammates go in and, you know, see see if he shared uh, some Shout of the same emotions. twice. <laughs> Yannick Hansen name-checked on two occasions. Good for him. There you go. There you <laughs> One go. One would imagine that felt good. We'll, we'll get his reaction on that. Um, you know, and I, by the way, I, I did think this is why a lot of uh, Canucks Twitter glommed on to the fact that there was the cut shot of Canucks owner Francesco Aquilini, um, you know, looking unhappy, right? Mm-hmm. Frankly, right? Uh, now, granted, I'm sure there's a lot on Canucks ownership's minds as they watch this team struggle, but that was in such sharp contrast with the overall joyfulness of, of the evening, of the experience, and I think that's why it stuck out 
to so many Canucks fans. Just a, a visual indication of how out of step at the moment the organization appears to be with its fan base. And these texts come in immediately from Rager, says, okay, Hall of, Hall of Fame weekend is over. Let's see those trades. And Marcus and Gibson's texts in, the most Canuck thing would be to win tonight in Buffalo and save Bruce Boudreaux one more night as head coach. Now, it is a Canucks game day. Obviously, they play the Buffalo Sabres, 4 o'clock Pacific. Uh, your full game day coverage here on Sportsnet 650. Dan and uh, Sat with your pregame coverage and Batch and Randeep on the call. Sat and Bick with your postgame show. Uh, wrapping up their five-game road trip. And Marcus alludes to the idea of, hey, a win tonight and, you know, staving off some sort of consequences. Whether it's saving Bruce Boudreaux's job, whether it's, you know, preventing anyone from being traded or from being put on waivers or scratched or whatever the case may be. But I, let, let's be very clear here. Tonight's result should not mean anything in that regard, right? Like, the the you know, based on Rutherford's comments about this road trip, he really challenged the team. He, he said, I want to see something different on this road trip. If not, there might we might have to do something. We're going to have to get the players' attention. The team has already made their bed on this road trip, right? They were challenged. They failed to respond. In my mind, there's nothing they can do tonight that can change I disagree that. with you. Oh. I disagree with you. I oh. think they did respond. Okay. They responded and showed exactly who they are. Right. They were challenged to stand up. They did not. And they didn't. We know everything we need to know now. And there's nothing they can do tonight that can change that or erase the first four games of the road trip. Right? So, like, I understand. Or erase the, or erase the last three seasons. I... Or erase a second consecutive start like this after months of talking about how it would be different. You know, yeah. I, I mean, there's no, there, you have to know, you have to know who this group is. And and this is sort of what I'm worried about, nervous about as we go into this week with a sense of a shoe hanging suspended above the ground, right? Ready to drop at any moment. It's hanging like, uh, like Wiley E. Coyote does off a cliff, like just long enough to have a sense that in fact, there is no ground underneath it, at which point. You know, it might look to the camera, hold up a sign, and only then would it fall. With, of course, its eyes remaining in frame until the very last moment. Looney Tunes physics. That's where we are with the Canucks, right? It's like we've run off the cliff, and now we're just waiting to notice <laughs> before we drop. That's where we're at. And my, my concern here, my concern here, based off of what we saw last year, was that this organization doesn't have a history of reacting well in these moments, mm. right? They didn't react well last year. In fact, the seeds of the discontent we're experiencing now can trace its origin all the way back to December 4th when uh, tra tra Travis Green and Jim Benning were both fired with ownership hiring a coach before the management team, right? And at no point really conducting a thorough search on that management team. I mean, all of that and, and was And then, answer, apparently miscommunicating or in some way failing to properly communicate the details of the coach's contract to the new head of hockey operations as we learned I mean I mean this year. that that just turns tragedy into farce but yeah for sure I mean that's inexcusable right these are rookie organization things which you have to expect better from an ownership group that's owned this team since 2005 like we're almost 20 years into the Aquilini era of, of Canucks ownership there's no excuse for something like that that's amateur hour and it's still playing out today. I mean, my concern now is, like, do you, do you overreact to make a statement to the market, right? Mm. Do you, you know, what I really am worried about is that 
we see a guy like a Garland or a Besser. Because at the end of the day, I feel like those are the easier guys to move, right? Especially if you're willing to take some money back. Teams know that the Canucks are sinking, right? They're, they're all, if anyone calling Vancouver is calling with an opportunistic bent at the moment, right? It's hard to make deals when you're sinking, right? It's hard to make deals when the vultures are circling. And that's what's happening to Vancouver right now. My concern is that you move one of those guys, guys who for me should be absolute clear holds because of the opportunities that should be vacated were this team to be serious about dismantling itself, right? If you if you were to make the more impactful deals <laughs> move first, the deals attached to older players signed for longer or the the high the high scoring pending UFA in, in Captain Bo Horvat. If you're to make those deals, you're opening up tons of power play opportunity for somebody else. For me, Garland and Besser fit this mold where it feels like if the team's going to shake it up, it's one of those. And yet for those guys, they to me are the most important guys to hold because their value's low. Because everyone knows that Connor Garland was a healthy scratch earlier this year, right? Because wingers are undervalued generally and teams might look at it as an opportunity to buy even lower on a depressed market. Um, you can clear cap space by doing those deals potentially. You can definitely find players in that 24 to 26-year-old mm. range that the Canucks are targeting as if those players won't be 31 before this team's ever good again. Right? Like, we have to stop. 24 to 26, considering the state of this organization, isn't young enough. Isn't young enough. They're going to be 30 before this team's meaningfully, seriously contending. Like, this is not the age range that matters for this team anymore. That needs to be abandoned. My concern is that we're going to see something like that. A lipstick on, the pig, on a pig deal. Something like that. I think that's more likely, frankly, although things can change hour to hour, than Bruce Boudreaux getting fired. And I'm almost, like, bracing for it. I'm bracing to be disappointed yet again by the actions of an organization that just cannot, cannot seem to see clearly who they are or what needs to happen. Whatever does happen and here's the thing I think I do think that Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin have to do something but something is a very that's a that's a big tent there's a lot encompassed and kind of wrapped in under that that could potentially fall into that category does, but, does something include not doing anything but well, just like settling the waters it could it could include because that's could the include, right move here. it could include public commentary that charts a new direction right like that to me would would fall under the category of something, but I think the the Rutherford has put himself <laughs> in a position here where because he laid it out very clearly on our station last week, right? Hey, we're getting to the point, and certainly after this road trip, we'll be at that point where we need to do something to wake the players up and hold them accountable. And I think once you say that publicly, you kind of have to follow through with something. You're right. You've right? drawn a line in the sand. Like yep, and that's, you're not wrong. That's a basic parenting lesson that I've learned. You know what I mean? Once you say if X happens, we're going to do Y. When X happens, you better do Y or else you're just you're shooting yourself in the foot in terms of credibility. So I agree. It can't be yep. like if any move that comes, it can't be a panic move. It can't be done with the aim of, you know, salvaging the season. And as you said, putting lipstick on a pig. But you do have to back your words up. You have to say something or you have to do something. And again, I'm really I'm even willing to fudge it and and allow words to qualify as the something in this situation. But there has to be that follow through. And hey, maybe it's maybe it's scratching a veteran player on Friday, right? Yeah. Maybe it's something like would that. Send a big message. I, I think I, that's... I could I could buy that as the something as a result of this road trip, but there does have to be that something. 
yeah, I mean, I would far prefer words or a scratch or a proactive Bo Horvat deal. Those to me are the three things. If you really want to do something fast, those are like the top things that I do. The, the Horvat deal being the leading one only because we all know which way this is going, mm. right? It speaks volumes that the two sides didn't meet face to face when uh, the Canucks brass was in on Toronto for like an entire weekend or more uh, over the course of the past week. Um, you know, it's been quiet on that front for a long time. And that's because when the Canucks, the Canucks, the die is cast here. The team's performed too badly. And the JT Miller deal looks, you know, too unjustifiable in very recent retrospect to, to commit more money to another guy in their late 20s. Like, it just does not make sense at this point. So if, if that's where this is trending anyway, and if you want to weaken your team and maybe even take a run at the Anaheims and the San Jose's <laughs> at the bottom of the Pacific, you know, that's that's one way to do it. Trade the guy who's, what, second in the NHL in goals mm-hmm. at the moment? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's one way to do it. But So that move would make sense to me. We had some people texting into the inbox saying stuff like, um, you know, Drance, you always have to, you say, always say we have to lose trades. Why not move Besser or Garland? It's just about sequencing. You know, this is the point I was making on Halford and Bruff, like two or three years away. This team is two or three years away from being two or three years away. There is a thoughtful process that should start now to dismantle this team. And that needs to precede any idea of rebuilding. Like what happens first before you build something anywhere? Demolition. Yeah, that's where we're you take at. It apart. That's where we're at. You have to be really thoughtful about how you take it apart. And I hate to say this, but that's probably a two-year process in and of itself. Just look at the timing of when meaningful money starts to expire off the Canucks' books. Right? You've got the Pearson Myers uh, deals, for example, up in two years. Right? Besser the year after. I mean, you start to get real money expiring. In two years, you've also got Pedersen up, right? I mean, there's a lot to balance, but really, this is a two-year process to dismantle this team. And for me, that that needs to, that needs to be what you start with. And so, there's sequencing that makes sense in my view. And the sequencing, to me, puts guys like Garland and Besser at the back of the bus, along with guys like Myers, along with guys like Pearson, like some of the names that you most want to see traded, and I'm talking to the fans here. Yeah, yeah. Those, to me, are the names you have to be careful about because they're guys who could actually build up their value a little bit more should you hold, should you wait, should you give them a ton more PP1 time, right? Should they become bona fide top-line players on your team? Should their contracts lapse a little bit further, right? Like all of those factors especially for Besser and Garland who are in their mid-20s are time is in your favor on those guys time is not in your favor on the better players right on on Horvat on JT Miller Mm. guys like that there there is reason to explore things more proactively and you know for me anyway I mean I don't see how you start a demolition process and again, this is all just me talking about what they should do because at this point, at this point, in the wake of the JT Miller thing, right? Like I'm done doing the what do I actually think they will do? Like I'm done explaining what I think will happen because it's wild. It's wild. It doesn't make sense anymore. What makes sense to do, I think, is to explain what should happen here. What should very clearly happen here so that when this team falls well short of that, we're, we're not even indulging 
in the fantasies about why that might be a good move. We're just talking about why it's nonsense, why it's more of the same nonsense. Like we really have to reframe the conversation and not cover this organization like it's a normal sports team anymore, right? This is a unique level of failure. And the only way to cover it is to look at things rationally and say, actually, this is obvious now. We're not going to, I'm not playing the game I used to play where it would be like, well, you know, I think that the club should trade Tanner Pearson at the deadline, but the club thinks, and then you sort of justify why it might happen, right? Like it's wild. I can't do it anymore. I can't. It's th this level of ineptitude is corrosive and it's hard to explain if you're constantly allowing people to focus on the individual trees and not looking at the big picture that is the cataclysmic failure of this team. And so Right now, as we go into a week where it feels like anything can happen, not like in the playoffs, but like anything can happen in terms of the club's next move, I think it's really important to put on one side. Like, a coaching change is not a meaningful move. It's not. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. And in fact, it probably lets people off the hook too easy. A trade for guys in their mid-20s, even if it clears like a million in cap space, like unless you're getting significant futures back, does not move the needle does not move the needle unless it's one of the guys who are way harder to move, right? Or one of the pending UFAs. Those are the guys who need to go first. Your Pearsons, your Bessers, your Garlands, um, your Myers, those guys are holds. Those guys are guys who have very clear paths to having higher value in seven or eight months if you handle it right. And if you're keen about upping the value of your holdings, which is, which is everything now, which is everything. This organization needs to spend years of just disciplined time, upgrading the value of their holdings, upgrading their prospect system, carving out the flexibility to build, but they can't even start building for another couple of years at this point. It's so toxic in terms of what they've actually created at, at this juncture. I, 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 this is something like a mission statement. Like, I'm just not doing it anymore. I'm just not doing the, this is what I think they will do. This is how they see it. Like, I'm, not, I'm just not doing that anymore. We're just talking about what should very clearly happen because there's a right answer. Everyone knows it. Everyone in the entire city, everyone in the entire hockey business knows it. And that's the only thing we should be focused on at this point. It, we, it's clear. It's so clear. The only thing with Garland, Besser, <laughs> Myers, I appreciate that you're Pearson. just like, wow. I got to let that hang. Just let that sit for a second. Goodness, Trance. <laughs> I am so desperate to see this team actually create salary cap flexibility that I would be willing. If, if you get, if you clear the money off the books, right, and it's there's no, you, maybe you take a, a deal back that expires after this year, but there's nothing after that, especially with Myers and Pearson, then I think you're doing that 100% of the time. Right, if you can get that deal. Now, I'd be very skeptical that you can actually get that deal. But if, if sorry, that, if you can get which deal, if I, you I can get that, a deal that that for Myers and Pearson, like you take a contract back, but it expires after this year, and that's it, that's done. Oh, sure, then you do it, right? Sure, because the, the but then they expired the year after that anyway. So look, I get it, but you're certainly never in a position now where you know you do the kind of problem but, for a problem deal and take there. on salary that goes beyond this year, right? Like I wouldn't do that. Even there, why? Like like. You know, Myers is going to get paid his bonus. There's a 10-team no-trade list that he submits every July. Um, you know, like, why? Like, why Why do it now? Why, why not? If you're planning to rebuild, which you should be, if you're planning to tear it down, which you should be, right? Like, Myers' list might widen if you begin to wave a white flag. 
uh, after Myers' signing bonus gets paid out, he's a more appealing asset. As a rental, who you can retain 50% on without incurring a significant cash cost, um, he's a more desirable asset than he would be today, even if you're taking that money back. Like, you need to manufacture value. Everything that this organization has, all 50 contract slots, every player, at this point, it's just horse trading. Like, none of this matters, and none of this is going to matter for a couple of years because of the mistakes that have got us to this point. They need to admit and face that problem. That reality needs to be grasped organizationally, or they're just going to keep digging. I think if you're serious about rebuilding, look, I don't have a problem, ultimately, if you hold Myers and Pearson for that purpose, right? But if you're serious about rebuilding, I mean, you know, I've talked about it so much, right? The What, what you can do to facilitate a rebuild when you have that salary cap space if you find a way to get Myers $6 million off your books going into the summer, I think that opens up other ways for you to rebuild, right? And other ways for you to collect assets. So that's why I would be willing to do it, even though the return, even if there was no return, right? Like, yeah, theoretically, you might be able to get a return, uh, as you said, at the trade deadline next year, retain half. He's an expiring contract, all of that. That's great. You also lose the opportunity to have that meaningful cap space in the summer. Now, look. I'm not saying this is the biggest difference in the world. Like, ultimately, th- th- that's not going to make or break. The timing of a Tyler Myers salary cap dump deal is not going to make or break uh, a theoretical Canucks rebuild. But again, they've been so desperate for salary cap flexibility that at this point, if it's on the table, I think you seriously, seriously have to consider it as long as, as long as you're getting it with the premise of we're going to use this cap space as part of our rebuilding process and not to go out and bid on, you know, this high-priced right-handed defenseman that we have our eyes on uh, on July 1st. That obviously would be a massive, massive mistake. But if you are getting that salary cap space, you know, with the premise that, okay, this is part of our rebuilding process, I get it. Yeah, maybe some of these players will have more value down the road, but I, I'm a fan of just getting that cap space ASAP that gives you so much, so many other things uh, that you're able to do. I want to throw it out to the listeners as well. 650, 650, right? And we're talking about something has to happen just based on the words of Jim Rutherford. And it could be a healthy scratch. It could be messaging. It could be a coaching change. It could be a trade. Whatever it is, what do you want to see that something be? And the other thing we'll say, you know, we, we mentioned like it could be a message. It could be a messaging thing. It could be words. As, at a certain point, I think a lot of fans, they just want to hear... They want to hear the right thing before they even see the right things happen. You know what I mean? They want to hear and they want to know that management sees the problem as we do and that they're committed know. I to disagree doing those with things. You. I disagree with you. I think management came in and said the things that people wanted to hear. Certainly they said the things that I wanted to hear and their actions didn't match it in their first cycle. Did not match it. I don't think words are going to do anything at this point. Like I really don't. I really think people need to see the sort of action that shows that the organization understands just the size and scale and depth of the hole they're in. I think, it I think it's going to take real action. I think it could be a start, but there does have to be real action to back it up, right? And whether that's Bo Horvat, JT Miller, something genuinely significant and not just chipping away, not just uh, playing on the margins and, and fiddling with the margins of this team. Yannick Hansen, former Canuck, of course, former teammate uh, of the trio of former Canucks that went into the Hockey Hall of Fame last night. We'll get his thoughts on the Sedins and Roberto Luongo, what it was like to see them honored in that way and for him to be name-checked at the ceremony. And, of course, we'll also talk lots about the current predicament of the Canucks with Yannick Hansen next on Sportsnet 650.
Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Strand. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Tons and tons and tons of thoughts coming in as uh, we continue to debate, talk about where the Canucks are going, what might happen, what should happen around the team right now. Yannick Hansen will join us in a few minutes, uh, of course, coming to you live from the Kintec studio here. And, and this one came in, uh, and actually we'll uh, we'll get back to the Dunbar Lumber text line uh, a little bit later in the show. But right now we are very pleased to be joined by former Canuck and regular contributor here on Sportsnet 650, Yannick Hansen. Yannick, thanks as always for doing this. How are you? Yeah, it's my pleasure. Pleasure. So, uh, yeah, again, it's it's another one tonight. Hopefully, uh, you, you'll see some sort of spark. But um, they're they're running out of uh, runway real fast here. Yeah, they certainly are. And we'll we'll talk about the game tonight. We'll talk about you know everything happening around the team. But first, <laughs> resignation in Yannick's voice. <laughs> first, it was actually a, a night to celebrate. Um, some of the Canucks passed last night at the Hockey Hall of Fame. A trio of your former teammates, of course, Daniel and Henrik Sedin and Roberto Luongo, officially inducted, giving their speeches at the Hockey Hall of Fame. What was it like for you to see that with, with your former teammates last night? Yeah, it was obviously tremendous to see. Um, I, I think I touched on this uh, in some of the previous interviews here. Um, what those three did um, for the city, for the team, for the organization was nothing short of spectacular. Um, they, they drove the team to, to new heights. And every time we had success, it was the team. Every time there was failure, issues, it was them. It was not the team. It was them. So for now, to see them get this recognition where they're not being spoken to or about their individual it's hank it's danny and it's lou getting this credit it's great to see because they they deserve it um they pushed us in a direction and took us to new height that none of us would have probably gotten there if it hadn't been for them to to see them get the finally get the recognition they deserve was uh, it, it was it was heartwarming to see Yannick, what does it mean to you when you're shouted out by both Henrik and Daniel and watching the broadcast, hearing your name from the Hall of Fame stage? Yeah, it's speechless. I, I, had to, uh, I had to rewind it a couple of times to make sure I heard it right. <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it, again, it, it speaks to the, the, the people they are. Like, they don't forget anybody. Um, they're, they're, they're kind. They're nice to everybody. And I, I think I can speak for just about everybody who, who's crossed paths with them whether it's one game or or it's 700 games they treat everybody genuinely kind like it didn't matter if it was a rookie first second if it was the people that uh, maintained the ice or or the it it didn't matter they took their time to sign autographs visit uh, talk chat photos all of these things when when you could say okay well uh, maybe somebody else should do it raise your hand uh, and you guys go do it and they know the twins they were the first to to go to every single event uh, and do all these things uh, for for the community and again they they did so much not just on the ice but but off the ice and i think that's what we aren't talking about as much because of what they did on the ice but again the the individuals they were and and what they did um speaks in my in my opinion even higher about them 
Lou really focused on family over the course of his speech, but he's so competitive that even as he's thanking his wife for holding down the fort, he can't resist putting in there, you know, but I also was out out on the road winning at cards. Uh, Lou's, of course, said that you used to get rinsed at seven up, seven down. (laughs) (laughs) Is that how you remember it? Uh, that's probably like how he would like to remember it. Um, <laughs> no, it was like I said, they, these, they were so competitive. And again, I played with, with them quite a bit. Um, we were, what were we, eight, 10, 12 guys killing a lot of hours on, on the plane. And they didn't care that, that I was a 20 year old rookie. I, I could come and play with them. Uh, no, no question asked and have fun, kill time. And again, we're all laughing about it. The, the competitive nature of it again. You, you like they're they're proud people, and it didn't matter where we were. It wasn't it wasn't about money. It wasn't about it was about bragging rights. It was about being the best at anything we did, no matter what. Yannick, you know, you talk about the competitiveness of of that team in general, and specifically of the Sedins and Luongo, and you look at this, the current version of the Canucks, and, you know, Jim Rutherford challenged them, challenged the coach before this five-game road trip, and the results haven't been there. They've won one game, but generally they just they haven't played very well. They've lost three in a row. Are you surprised that we didn't see more kind of pushback and, and a little bit more pride from the Canucks on this road trip after being called out like that? Um, the problem with being getting called out is it isn't, it isn't the first time. Like the, the message was after three games, they was themselves calling themselves out uh, close, um, close room behind closed doors, uh, players only meeting. Then it was Jim, then it was uh, Bruce, and then it was Jim again. Um, you you got to be careful tapping uh, these these buttons as a GM, as a president, as a coach too often because the message kind of gets diluted. Where the first time somebody like that shouts out, it's like, oh, sh- what, what's going on here? What what's going to happen? Uh, but now it's just like, yeah, well, it's Tuesday, and he did it again. Um, the, 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 the team's got to find a way to police, police themselves. They got to find a way to play <laughs> with with a, with the right amount of uh, finesse, the right amount of tenaciousness to to win these hockey games. Nobody can do it for them. Um, and again, it was great to see. Was it when last time we got called on? You saw Tanner Pearson come out fighting, um, and these things. But but it can only happen so many times. These things. Um, so again, it's it it doesn't feel good when you're watching them and they keep losing the same way. Uh, it's the same things that that get picked apart. It, it's their penalty kill. It's their turnovers. Uh, it's not defending uh, a proper, the right way. Call it whatever you want. Um, it's 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 who they are at this point. I think we've we've seen it enough that it's not a a, a lonesome uh, uh, thing that just happened and then we get out of it. No, it, it's the same team. They did it last year as well. Um, for some reason, they found a way to to turn it on. Whether it was um, Demko all of a sudden playing above and beyond, which obviously he isn't doing now, which which hurt him a little bit more than you would have otherwise. Um, but 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 again, it, it's the same team, it's the same group. Yeah, you've added some some fringe players, if you will, but but it's the same core. Um, it's the same it's the same guys that gotta that gotta do the the, the heavy pulling. Um, and again, they they couldn't do it last year when it mattered. They were great down the road uh, when they were kind of out of it and nobody expected anything of them. Um, but that is what's a little bit concerning to me because you, you see it very often that these teams that 
in theory, has nothing to play for. Um, they play a little loser. They play a little better. Um, and, and then all of a sudden you get this, uh, oh, it, 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 we might have something here, but then you'd revert right back to, to what we just saw when, when the games truly matters, and, and they matter right now. They mattered at the beginning. That's when we needed to scrape around these points. So you're in the hunt and you're not out of it by Thanksgiving. Um, but again, this is what we're seeing. You know, Yannick, as you said, when it's just the coach or, or even the GM kind of talking and, and using words to call out players, it can uh, it, it can fall on deaf ears pretty quickly. Do we need to see actual kind of tangible accountability for, you know, I know Kuzmenko was a scratch, Garland has been a scratch, but for a top player, maybe, or a high-profile player on this team to either be a scratch or see their minutes reduced, is that the kind of thing that could maybe at least start to build that accountability at this point? Uh, you, you'd hate to, to think that was the case. Um, I don't know if you're going to take JT Miller out of the lineup. You're obviously not taking Bo out. Um, so, so I don't, I don't know if you can pull that string. Um, I think you, you, you need to look at yourself real hard up in the direction and say, okay, are we, do we truly believe this is the group we're going to win with? Uh, do we need to add a couple of pieces here? And this is the team that's going to compete with Vegas, with Colorado, with, with these teams? Or do we say, okay, didn't, we made a mistake here. We, we, we need to dial it back and then come back three, four years, five years down the line when uh, PD, when Quinn uh, are yeah, 26, 27 instead, and then have – have them at that point, and that's the team we need to start focusing on now. And, and then we're talking about a blow-up because then you need to get rid of Bo. You need to get rid of uh, Besser. You need to get rid of, of JT Miller because they won't be around four or five years down the line, um, especially not in the same capacity. Um, but again, those, those are some very hard decisions. But again, what are the directions for the Vancouver Canucks? Is it getting in the playoff and then getting blown out by Colorado? Or, or are we truly trying to win a Stanley Cup because those are two different things. If you're just trying to get in and then get in, maybe we get lucky, maybe we get a favorable first-round matchup, maybe something can happen. Well, then you have a team on paper who could theoretically do that if you added a defenseman or two here. Then then you have a team that can do that. But but if you're truly, we're, we're wanting to win and, and we think we can do this, then you probably need uh, a little bit different uh, complexion of player than you do have now, and that's not something you can do overnight. Amen. Yannick, wanna wanna ask you about some commentary that came from one of your former assistant coaches, uh, Rick Bonus, uh, current head coach of the Winnipeg Jets. He was on After Hours, and the quote was, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right in front of me, but it was, uh, "On bad teams, nobody leads." On an average team, the coach leads, and on a great team, the players lead. What does that mean to you, and what does that mean to you in the context of what we're seeing from the Canucks right now? Well, that, that, that's what we, we, we touched on. The, the team has to police itself. Um, you said that the message from the coach can, can get a little bit stale, but if, if you're having somebody that you're practicing with every day, you're in the gym with every day, you're on the ice with – this guy is the guy that, that that's stepping up for you when you're getting hammered, hit from behind, that's fighting your battles for you. If he comes to you and he says, you're not doing your freaking job, get it done, you will respond a completely different way and have a different sense of pride, a different kind of fear of not letting this guy down than if you're just seeing it in the media or the same guy comes in and he chews out the whole, the whole team. So you need this kind of policing 
in the dressing room and it can't be one guy it, it has to be it has to be a handful if not even more so this message doesn't come from the same guy and it's not the same boogeyman who does it every single time no it, it's different so everybody knows that this is what's expected of us this is what we expect of each other of ourselves and then you hold yourself to a kind of a, a higher standard than you possibly would otherwise because you're not wanting to let down all these guys that, that you're trying to achieve something with so yeah you need you need coaches um, to give you the directions the systems keep everybody within uh, the same kind of uh, of playing style but within that everybody is their own personality they need to play they, they have different things they provide um so you need it you need it all but again that that group that that we keep talking about that that take charge in the dressing room hold people accountable um like you don't want to be told by your center to stop turning the puck over you don't want to be told by your other winger hey can you please finish your check like i'm finishing my check every single time you do it as well like we're we're trying to do something here because that like then it's all of a sudden a different kind of pride here because now you're getting called out for not not playing the best way you possibly can and then you start hurting your team and your teammates so it's these little things that aren't said um, in a meaningful way but but it's said in a way that you're uh, we're better than this and, and please tighten it up and get a little bit better so we all get better for it Yannick you you're talking about what approach might actually bring a cup to Vancouver as opposed to uh, an approach that might just help you make the playoffs. You're a guy who wore the Canucks logo on your chest with with a ton of pride over a lot of games, uh, played in the game seven of the Stanley Cup final, uh, got as close as you can get without without hoisting the trophy. What would it mean to you to see this team, this organization, begin to take itself seriously in terms of pursuing that ambition? I, I think they do take themselves seriously. I, I, that is the goal. That is what they want. Um, again, what you want and what you're doing are often can be sometimes conflicting because it, mm. it will mean you're taking a couple of steps back and nobody likes to take steps back. I didn't like it when I was a player. Um, when we when we were talking about this back in um, when AV got let go, we, we had another kick. They brought in Torch. He was definitely not a guy you're going to blow it up with. We're, we're going to keep keep the same direction here, add a couple pieces, try to win. Then it started to become, okay, maybe we retool on the fly here, which in my, in my opinion, when I was a player, there was great because it meant I'm part of this team. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, if they say, oh, we're going to blow this up, uh, I'm out of here. But now as a fan, I, I, don't, I don't care if this happened two years, five years, or seven years down the line. I just want to see that path. And in my opinion, the two-year goal is not happening. The five-year probably isn't. So you need to look longer term. And in order to do that, you need to take those steps back now. I was all for this when they were in the bubble and they were, they were playing well and it was on the upswing and all mm-hmm. these things. Uh, last year, I was like the same thing. Okay, these guys, they're playing really, really good. Yeah, it's a little bit too much run and gun. But all we really need is we can lock down the, this defense a little more and these guys can still score three goals a night. We will win a ton of hockey games. And, and it had a path. Summer comes, summer goes, and nothing really gets done with strengthening this team's biggest weakness, which was obviously the defense, and we're seeing it now in, in spades. Um, and you hear this, yeah, it's not easy to make trades. It's not easy to make these things happen. No, but then you're just coming back with the same guys expecting a different result. 
and I don't think it will happen in this league. So, so you needed to take these steps over the last three years to correct this decor that has been lacking. They've been adding a ton of pieces up front, and, and I really like the the offense they have right now they could use a couple of defensive minded uh, players uh, to kill penalties but in terms of sheer offense they, they have it they can score goals we've seen it there's no question about it there's a ton of talent um, but if you cannot keep the puck out of your net you can't win uh, and again defense win championship yada 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 all these things but it is a lot easier when you're tired tonight they're playing their fourth or fifth game on the road uh, you just want to get back to vancouver you're all the way out in in new york like it's a lot easier to win that game 2-1 than go, to go out and score six goals and have to win in a shootout six six to four um, and those are the points that will put you over the top at the end of the year when you're not really expecting and when your top guys aren't going, but you're getting a little bit of contribution from the bottom six. But all we really need is a couple of goals because we have the defense that can take care of business here. So we go out tonight, we get one or two, and, and we, we, we're going to get some points here. But but right now it, it seems like a fairy tale because we know if these guys don't score these three or four goals at least, like it, it's it, they're hard matched to, to get two points. In conversation with former Canuck Yannick Hansen, a few more minutes here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And, you know, Yannick, there's been a lot of speculation around the the head coach of the Canucks, Bruce Boudreau, and whether his job could be in jeopardy, you know, whether tonight could be his final game as Canucks head coach. I certainly don't think that Bruce Boudreau in any way, shape, or form is to blame for what we're seeing on the ice. What would your reaction be if the team did decide to make a coaching change over the next few days here? I'd be shocked unless unless the guy that they're like okay this is this is this is the guy we're bringing in he's the guy who's going to bring a couple of cups to Vancouver and I don't see him sitting around right now uh, on the wings um, that they can just hire and do that there's a lot of talented coaches but truth be told we saw Greener with this group we're seeing Bruce with this group we're going to see another guy with this group I I think you can expect the same result. Um, the, the, the change now, in my opinion, has to come on the player side, and it's a lot harder to do um, because there, there's no dialing that back. Yeah, you hire Bruce last year; it was great. Now you fire him; no big deal. You trade Bo Horvat, and you change the direction of the Vancouver Canucks for the next five, ten years in an instant. And there's no pulling that one back. Granny doesn't sign back in the off season, but I don't know <laughs> if you can make that deal. Um, it's one of those things where it's a nuclear option when you go out and, and you you move one of these players that will make a difference in your lineup right now and down the line. And again, you don't even know what you're getting. Um, so so it, it's very, very challenging and it, uh, it probably takes some... Uh, yeah, it takes it takes some guts to make those decisions because, like I said, you're uh, you're gonna get scrutinized from now and and until whatever player you get back is done playing the hockey game. Um, and it's one of those things that I'm sure GMs hate to make those decisions on your very very good players. Um, do we do we trade this guy and and bring back a draft pick or a young guy that we don't really know what will turn into be? Uh, it could be a complete bust, and it could be our captain. 10 years from now it's one of those things uh but again if we're if we're trying to win something down the line maybe you need some more shots in the cannons and that is draft picks that is young guys uh coming in at the right time uh together so you're not spread out through uh some young guys some middle guys and and some old guys that you're always in this cycle of of 
almost being a couple of players uh, short of having a really, really good team. You, you need to make sure they come together at the right time. Um, and then add these fringe players, which are a lot easier to, to add in the off-seasons or at deadlines. But, but you, need, you need that core that will take you all the way and then support them. Yannick, always really appreciate the time. Hopefully you can enjoy the game tonight, and uh, we look forward to hearing you again on the station. Sounds good. Take care. That is former Canucks forward Yannick Hansen, of course, regular contributor every Tuesday and every Friday here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, bringing the heat, bringing the heat, bringing the truth bombs, as he always does, Drancer. And he, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I the thing I love about Yannick is that he brings you the insight as obviously a, a former player who's seen team success at a very high level, who played a long time in the NHL, but now he's also a fan. And he even referenced that in his, you know, in addition to being an analyst, he's a fan. He, he said, you know, when I was a player, sure, retool on the fly, that sounds great because of my personal standpoint. Now from the outside looking in, I can see why that is kind of insufficient. As a fan, I want to see the full rebuild. I think that, that combination of perspective from Yannick, from Yannick is always fascinating. Especially the idea that his perspective has changed to that extent, right? I mean, that's something that he brings that's unique, and you can understand it entirely. Um, You know, again, I don't know. I I do think the club has performed at a level where there's a recognition that they're further away than management thought going Mm. into the season. I think that has happened. And what does that mean? I'm not quite sure, but I still suspect that you know what I'm talking about on a, on a daily basis now and what I insist on hammering uh, and, and will continue to hammer, by the way, no matter what happens <laughs> from here to the end of the season and probably beyond, just because I, I think it's obvious. Um, you know, despite that, I, I, I don't think we're going to see something quite that aggressive, quite that dramatic. It's not, it's not in this tiger to change their stripes to that extent, but I do think we're going to see more future-oriented moves. I, I do. I, I think we have to. Uh, there's no question about that based on how this team has performed, how they've responded, and what's coming next, particularly at the top of the 2023 NHL entry draft. Um, you know, I do think I I won't be surprised. I agree with the annex formulation on the coach. It's That matches what I've been saying for a long time. I, that's actually what I expect. But I do think that there will be moves at some point and perhaps sometime, some point soon. Um, designed in part to to weaken this team, designed in part to make sure that this team doesn't get back in the race and, in fact, is at least able to get a cookie <laughs> out of another struggle season. Well, the Bo- the point you made about Bo Horvat and the idea of trading Bo Horvat at the end there is really interesting because, you know, as he said, it, it's it, you can't undo that in the same way you can undo a bad coaching hire, potentially, right? Once no, you the, do the that. the problem with trading Bo Horvat is that you can only trade him once. Yeah. And once you <laughs> and do you that, don't have Bo Horvat. <laughs> yeah, once you do that, it's as he said, it it affects the direction of your franchise for the next five to ten years potentially. And the, as you've said, you know the die is kind of cast on Bo Horvat. So it's almost in a situation where once you trade your your twenty seven or twenty eight year old captain who's filling the net and having a career year, like aren't you kind of almost by definition rebuilding? <laughs> you know what I mean? Isn't that the definition of a rebuild move? And they've kind of boxed themselves into a corner where all signs are pointing towards that happening. So it almost feels like a situation where whether 
management is going to want to admit it or embrace it or not. They are going to, in fact, be in a rebuild officially, more or less, once you make that Bo Horvat deal, because that's what it signifies at that point. As Yannick said, it's a it's an extreme option, and it signals the direction of your franchise for the next five or ten years, right? But it's really not an extreme option. In fact, it's the only one. It's the only rational one at this point, right? What's What's far more extreme would be to keep doubling down on this group. Like that would be truly extreme. I think it can be. I both, mean, if you want to, I think it can be if both you wanted to find and extreme, though, right? Like if the, you wanted to find extreme as like as like um, you know riding an electric motorcycle out of a helicopter at twenty thousand feet or ten thousand feet or whatever. I mean, it, you know, nothing's more extreme than doubling down on this roster in NHL terms. I would say something. I'm we sorry, gotta, we got to take true. a quick. We got to take a break here. But I would say something can be extreme and rational at the same time, right? Like if you define extreme as drastic, significant. Sure, you know no, what I, I mean? don't disagree with. That. Yeah, so I think. I mean, most is- of most of what I'm suggesting is is seen probably as extreme by a lot of people, especially a lot of decision makers. It's just that, you know, the the the, the pain I'm talking about, it's coming anyway. I just want to see it have a purpose. Have some meaning. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Tax line. We'll read some of your thoughts on the other side. Uh, hear from head coach Bruce Boudreaux as well. Hey, yeah, it's a Canucks game day. They play the Buffalo Sabres. We'll chat about that a little bit as well. A final hour of the show, Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650 and a Canucks game day. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here with you for another hour. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. I am coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec footwear and orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. I also want to give a, a quick shout-out to the Canucks Autism Network Pro-Am Raffle, which is in full swing right now. You can buy tickets for your chance to win uh, the ultimate Whistler experience, including some great prizing. Of course, all the proceeds go to CanucksAutism.ca, or Canucks Aut- the Canucks Autism Network. Uh, you can get your tickets till next week, November 21st. Check out CanucksAutism.ca slash Whistler for more information. Uh, Drancer, we'll get into uh, the matchup with Buffalo here a little bit. I mean, it almost feels beside the point. I mean, it does feel beside the point. It feels actually a little bit surreal, to be honest, this Canucks game day, because we've all been through the kind of irrelevant ends to the season for the Canucks in, in recent memory. We all know what that feels like, where there's not a lot of stakes to the game. There's not a lot, not a lot going on. This one feels unique because there is such a firestorm around the team, and yet... As I laid out in the first segment, the result of the game is not going to change anything. The result of the game is not going to erase what we've seen over the last four games, over the last three years, right? So we're all kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop, but also it feels like it does not depend whatsoever on what actually happens on the ice tonight in Buffalo. And that makes it feel, I mean, there's been a lot of odd Canucks game days in recent memory, but this one feels uh, maybe a little particularly strange to me at least. I, I agree with you, but, you know, Yannick was right when he said, well, Yannick's always right, but Yannick was per- especially correct, <laughs> more correct than usual, when he pointed out that it's early yet, right? I mean, the Canucks can still get on a run here. You know, their goaltending has been so uncharacteristically poor 
that I don't think you'd be stunned if Demko takes a reset, comes back and plays on mm-hmm. Friday because Spencer Martin left the ice first. So it looks like Spencer Martin's getting the start again. And, you know, not that Im- not that he immediately returns to form as an elite goaltender, but maybe has a few average games and then gets on one of those Demko-like tears. Like, that's the thing about Demko, right? We've seen him have months of dominance. And this team, in all situations, has the worst save percentage in the NHL, right? They have the single worst all situations save percentage in the league at the moment. They're not going to end the season there. They're not going to end the season within sort of... um you know, shouting distance of that. Now, far closer to league average five on five. I think there are shots that Demko is facing five, four on five that are completely unstoppable. Like nothing anybody could do. Nothing, you know, Dominic Hasek in his prime (laughs) could do considering how Vancouver's penalty killer is performing. That's a big part of what's going wrong for Vancouver. And I think that's process. I don't think that's just luck. But, you know, nonetheless, one of Vancouver's big issues is they have the lowest save percentage in the league. I don't expect that to be true at the end of the season as that comes, you know, sort of back to earth a bit as they as they rejoin the chase pack. You'd expect them to win a few more games than they have to this point. Um, the other know, sorry, the other thing with, said, the other thing with Demko, I'll just point out, is from now until at least like January, the Canucks, not necessarily in terms of quality of opponent, but in terms of actual like frequency of games, the schedule thins out a little bit. They've got a lot of like two days off before games, especially in December. They have a three day break and a bunch of two day breaks. So if there is some sort of, you know, as you said, reset, rest, recovery still needed for Demko, he is going to get that opportunity uh, over the next six weeks or so here, especially, you know, with the Canucks feeling fully confident in putting uh, Spencer Martin in that right now. So again, the physical rehabilitation process or, you know, if the, if the surgery from the summer is still, uh, causing problems for Thatcher Demko, he's going to get a chance to recover and reset and and probably return to something close to his level here. Yeah, and, and I don't think I don't think that he's like far away from 100% or, or whatever. Like I think if you're hopeful that this is mostly that um not to abandon all hope, but uh, you know, I'm sure it's part <laughs> of it, but I don't think he's I don't think that's decisive. Like I'm sure if I asked him, he would Tell me, oh sure, uh, you know, politely <laughs> or not so politely, uh, that that wasn't the thing. That that's an excuse. That that's not something that he would, um, you know, want to like. That's an out he wouldn't even give himself. So you know, I, I think the reset's more mental. I think it's just that it hasn't been going in. Uh, this is a new level of struggle for him. It's not something he's been through a ton over the course of a mostly ridiculously successful <laughs> pro career. And I, I just think that it's, you know, taken him perhaps a bit longer than he wanted to get himself out of this. Um, but I still think he'll get himself out of it. He's still Thatcher Demko. He's really, really good. Like, he's incredibly good. And I think he's going to still be, you know, this might be an off season for him at year's end. Um, he might not be an every season above average workhorse starter, right? Uh, we've seen him do it once. It was amazing. But, you know, doing it year after year after year is something that becomes rarer and rarer, right? Two or three guys a generation capable of doing it. One of them was inducted into the Hall of Fame last night for for that reason, without a Stanley Cup, because it's that rare. It's that great to be at that level. Uh, Demko may not be at that level. That's reasonable, right? Coming into the season, he was, what, a 9-14 goaltender over, like, 4,000 shots faced. He's now a 9-10 goaltender for his career as a result of this early season struggles. Like, his career save percentage has dipped that much, just over, what, 11 tough starts? Mm-hmm. 
that that just tells you how early he remains in his career. You know, we tend to think that we have some grasp over a player's true talent level from a from a driving save percentage point of view and obviously save percentage is not great it doesn't take into account shot quality or the environment um it's not perfect but but tends to be repeatable at least to some extent or uh, you know if you've if you've maintained it over 3,000 games we t- we tend to or to 3,000 shots excuse me we tend to say okay that's sort of a meaningful sample in terms of indicating who this guy probably is but to do it again over the next 3,000 shots and then to do it again over the next 3,000 shots it's it's an incredibly high bar and remember the difference between a 915 goaltender, which is like a high-end starter, right? And a 907 goaltender, which is like a backup, right? A guy who's getting a one-way deal, a one-year one-way deal every summer, maybe for $2 million <laughs> because of the inflation that market. Like the difference between those two guys is seven extra saves over a thousand shots. You know, like, it's not like, I mean, there's so much that can explain that. In terms of bounces, in terms of posts, in terms of a team being really, really terrible on the penalty kill, like coverage and themselves be seen, <laughs> coverage in front of the goalie, yeah, yeah, constantly, like on teams scoring after two consecutive Royal Road passes <laughs> off a set faceoff. Uh, so I, I, you know, it's such a thin margin for goaltenders, and that's why very rarely do we see guys who every three thousand saves are the nine twenty guy. Like it's just. You know, it's an impossible standard to match. When guys can do it, they're greats for a reason. Uh, lots of guys will have an elite first 3,000, less than elite second 3,000, be elite again. <laughs> and, and it's really hard to predict sometimes. Maybe we're seeing that play out with Demko, but I still think he's just really good and just really struggling. And that eventually his uh, his form will match his talent. Well, whatever whatever level he eventually gets to this year, you know, as you said, they're not going to have the worst save percentage in the league, right? Like, that would just be an absolutely stunning result with the two goalies they have. Obviously, Spencer Martin, much less of a track record, but he's been good every time he's been in for the Canucks. So it is going to improve in some way. It's just a question of when and kind of at what rate and what the ultimate level uh, that it gets to is, at least as it relates to this year. Because I, I still am very much a believer in Thatcher Demko's talent going forward, but as it relates to what the rest of this season looks like, you know, it remains to be seen when that turnaround uh, starts to come. So they play the Buffalo Sabres tonight, and of course, we all remember very, very clearly, I'm sure, what happened the last time they played the Buffalo Sabres. It was the home opener at Rogers Arena. It was a disastrous night. For the franchise, Jim Rutherford went on after hours afterwards. There were jerseys tossed on the ice. They lost 5-1. They looked outclassed. It was a really, really bad night. Now, Buffalo has lost five in a row, but still a very dangerous team. Still a really tough matchup uh, for the Canucks because of the combination of size and speed, the mobility of guys like Dalene and Owen Power on the back end. Just because they've lost five in a row, you know, their underlying number numbers still look pretty good. Actually, this is a really, really tough matchup for the Canucks, as every matchup seems to be right now. But, yeah, I wouldn't look at Buffalo losing five in a row and say, oh, yeah, same old Sabres, back to doing what they're doing every year. I think I think this is still, uh, if not a you know true playoff team, maybe just yet, still a very, very talented and dangerous team at the moment. The thing to watch, though, is they are really down uh, a fair number of defensemen. <laughs> I mean, the loss of Samuelson is huge for them. So... You know, uh, Henry Yokoharju looks like he's going to be returning to the lineup, but for the first time in in a fairly long while. Um, They're not quite fully... 
up to speed, and I use the word speed with with <laughs> real intent on the back end, right? So that hurts them just a little bit. Uh, they they're still good, like Ilya Labushkin and Owen Power and Ross Mustalin and. You know, I think Jacob Bryson's a really underrated player. Number 78 tonight, watch for him because I think he might be, if you were to trade him onto Vancouver, I think he'd be the second best defenseman, um, which just goes to show you, you know, we're talking about the Buffalo Sabres and I'm saying that. That's yeah, tough. and he's going to be there. Really, that's really tough. He's going to be their um, fourth best defenseman tonight? No, third. Third? Third. I, I, I'd take him ahead of Labushkin. Sure, okay. Uh, so anyway, in any event, not it's not quite the same team we saw, but... They're still really fast. And and that top line with Tuck, Thompson, and Skinner laid waste to the Canucks in that head-to-head matchup last time out. Uh, you know, that's going to be a really big challenge for the Canucks. Can they contain that line? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it starts there if you're going to beat Buffalo, but they do have other players who can do some damage. And that's sort of where we get to. Like, that's where we get to where... You know, you're playing Buffalo and you're looking at it as, man, I don't know if the Canucks have the speed to hang with this group. That's a bad place to be considering where Buffalo's been for the last five years. Yeah, and you look at it and, you know, they're, they haven't been getting great goaltending, but obviously, as we just talked about, neither have the Canucks this year. You have no idea when that's going to turn around, as is the case always with goaltending, you know, and the power play or, or the special teams uh, tail of the tape is pretty similar between the two teams. Buffalo's penalty kill bad, obviously not as bad as the Canucks, but they have a really good power play, at least so far this year. So it's another one where, you know, I, I've been pretty down on the Canucks' chances on this road trip. It wouldn't shock me if they get a couple power play goals or something and are at least in this one, if they even uh, are managed to find a way to get the two points. But as you said, the speed the size, especially of the top of the lineup players for Buffalo is going to be really, really hard for the Canucks to contain. A couple of quick lineup notes. Jack Stunica goes on IR, the team announced. William Lockwood is recalled. He'll make his season debut for the Canucks. I don't think we really got a sense of the lineups or what anything is going to look like uh, for the yeah, Canucks. Sorry, I was working. I was working in Toronto till about two a.m. and was then the, I was what, like, "I'll wake up at five and I'll drive down to Buffalo." And then I woke up at nine thirty. <laughs> I was I was not intending to call you out there, Drancer. Don't worry. I no, no, it's saying, fine. Yeah. I'm I'm just explaining. I'm yeah. I'm seriously at the back end of a of a ten game ten day road trip, five games covering the Hockey Hall of Fame as well with with back to backs and and three days in Canada. I'm uh, I'm in rough shape. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I'm in rough shape, especially when you put me in Toronto, right, which is a city where I've got a lot of friends and yes. then the whole hockey world's there, and you put me there for five days. I mean, even my quiet nights, it's like three bottles of wine later. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Well, at least you get to... <laughs> <laughs> At least you get to wrap it up in beautiful Buffalo, uh, New York. But yeah, not not a lot of information about. The I'm, a, I'm I'm the I'm the world's foremost Buffalo, New York defender. I love it there. I have never been, but I have a sneaking suspicion that I would enjoy it. I, I like those kinds of towns. So I've never been, but uh, yeah, as much as fun as it is to dump on Buffalo, I can see myself enjoying yeah, Buffalo. Buffalo's great. Just fine. Buffalo's great. And I've got a lot of family in Southern Ontario. It's it's nice to be here. So we, we, we don't know exactly what the lines will look like, but um, I, I think just by based on the roster math, Lockwood will get a chance to play and we'll see what everything else looks like, what the blue line looks like. As you mentioned, Spencer Martin set to start. That's per uh, Heather Engel of NHL.com, who was at the Canucks game day in Buffalo today. Uh, let's hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux, who spoke to the media after that skate in Buffalo today. 
When it comes to the group that you guys are going to be playing, you saw them in Vancouver not long ago. Um, what kind of challenge do they present in a young, younger team at the pace that they play? Well, they they play at a great pace and their, their speed, uh, uh, the fact that they're deep jump into the play as well as they do is is going to be challenging. Um, there's no doubt about that. So, I mean, and they're the one team that, you know, they beat us 5-1 to one and, and we didn't look very good doing it. So, I mean, uh, we know we're in for... Uh, uh, a tough, t tough game tonight. Do you feel like you guys are getting closer to consistency with, with your game uh, at this point? Uh, we, we're getting better at a lot of areas, and uh, uh, I think, I mean, uh, it, we just don't want to make it too late till we get really good at all the areas. But I mean, we're getting better at it. So uh, hopefully tonight is a good turnaround on the way home that we can we can finish this trip off on the on the right note. Watching uh, Quinn Hughes, it makes me watching him play for you anyhow it makes me think of back to when you were coaching Mike Green or Jared Spurgeon or these guys how does he compare to those or is he totally as a skater different? he's as good or better than those guys he's on his edges as a passer he's uh, the best passer I've ever ever seen and had a lot of good players um, he doesn't have quite the 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 Mike Green go to the net type thing and the and Spurge was a very good, uh, very good defensive player. So, I mean, uh, those things may be a little better on that side, but you put it all together, and Quinn's as good as all of them. What have you learned about Tyler Myers since you took over, um, just his presence in the room and obviously what he brings on the ice for you guys? Well, I mean, when he's on his game, he's really good. You know, I mean, he's he's got that long stick. It's pretty hard to get by him, and uh, uh, that's just what we need. It's like the same thing with all our players. We just need more consistency out of them instead of doing it one night and, and looking great and the next night being looking mediocre. So, I mean, uh, I anticipate he's in Buffalo. He's going to have a good game tonight. You've had a very strong power play this season. Uh, what's, what's the biggest credit to that? We've got five good players <laughs> that are on it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, they, they finished the year last year. I mean, uh, we were the number one power play in the last 25 games, and it's the same five guys. And anytime you can, I've found out that any, you can keep the same guys uh, year after year. I mean, it a it makes you a good team when there's not that much turnover, and b that uh, they get to read off each other and know each other pretty well. I mean, you look at the Bruins, might all be. A lot of old guys, but they played with each other for so long. They're pretty good, you know. And you can look at all those teams that are a little older, that uh, the Tampa's and, and and such. That they're good because they're they know how each other moves. And our power plays the same way uh, right now as they know each other's moves and know where everybody's going. And and consequently, they, they get some success. How do you how do you get that to that kind of play to try to translate in five on five or evens? Well, I mean. It, it's a little different because it's not the same five guys uh, doing the same things. I mean, all those guys uh, uh, are on different lines, quite frankly. You know, you got the the three guys that are the, the centers, they're all on different lines, and you got Bessers on a different line tonight, and Hughes is a defenseman. So it's, it's, it's a little different because you're working with two other guys that are sort of foreign to you. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux. And, you know, I mentioned off the top of the segment, Drancer, how the, the Canucks game day experience feels a little bit surreal to me today, given the discussion surrounding the team. And, you know, that 
that presser from Boudreaux kind of contributes to it because as we were just talking about, I don't know if there were any dedicated Canucks reporters at the game day skate or at least in that scrum. So you have, you know, people based in Buffalo, maybe NHL.com people, and they're conducting it quite understandably as kind of a normal, you know, visiting coach to to uh, press conference, right? So, hey, you ask about uh, Tyler Myers, who, of course, started his career in Buffalo. He's going back to Buffalo. You know, you look at the stat sheet, and, hey, Quinn Hughes is racking up the points. Let's ask a positive question about him. Your power play is doing well. Let's ask about that. And Boudreaux, not necessarily, you know, gave an, a, a nice answer about Quinn Hughes, but on Tyler Myers also pivoted into, yeah, but we need a lot more consistency out of him and everyone, and just kind of the mismatch between our conversation around the team and the subject of that press conference was very, very striking to me when I listened to it earlier this morning. Well, that's why the negative Vancouver media is, <laughs> is part of this team's issues. If only every availability sounded like that. Yeah, no, I mean, look, this is what happens when people outside this market discuss this team, right? It, the <laughs> They're not weighted down. They're not weighted down by an understanding of what's really occurred here over the course of the past five years, but really over the course of the past 10 years. Um, it's impossible to understand. And people like to say that it's something about Vancouver or uh, negative media or that that hockey market. And look, we know. We know that it's an eccentric hockey market in Vancouver, right? We know that it's um, ravenous in its attention for both the team and and in terms of, um, you know, it's, it's love of controversy and off-ice drama. Like, we know all of this. This is all true. But ultimately, I think the way that we're talking about the team is far closer to its reality. And you can tell with Bruce Boudreaux's answers, oh, right? He, like, he's as, not, it's, he's, as it's yeah. going, he's actually not indulging no. the idea that things are fine or the idea that, like, you know, do, do you think you're close to turning the corner? Well, in some of things... <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. Well, and I think it, after the Boston game, and, and I, I want to be clear, I'm not taking shots at the people asking these questions. As I said, these are all very no, no, kind no of, they're completely fair. They're questions. very normal, normal questions that you ask well, the, the visiting they, coach they on game day, right? How could they? And and also, you know, you're an NHL.com or you're a Buffalo News reporter. Like, you yeah, know, you don't know Bruce Boudreau. No, you're, you're not, not coming gonna, in there. You're not going to be steeped in everything that's happened over the last calendar year for the Canucks in the same way that we are. So it's completely no, I, understandable. And it's a different thing for me to do it when Bruce knows that, like, when the camera turns off, he can ask me about it or be like, hey, what was that? You know, or, like, call me. Sure. Right? I mean, it's a totally different thing based on your level of comfort and your relationship. But I think it was fascinating as well because I believe it was after the Boston game where somebody asked Bruce about Quinn Hughes having a seven-game point streak and – Bruder's response was, yeah, you know, but they've pretty much all been on the power play. And really, he, and he didn't say it quite like this, but he basically said, who cares about point streaks <laughs> right now? And we got more of the same uh, from Bruce Boudreau today in Buffalo after his team skated. So, again, no lineup notes there, but Spencer Martin will be your starter. Uh, puck drop at 4 o'clock today against the Buffalo Sabres. You'll be able to hear it all here on Sportsnet 650. Pre-game coverage at 3. Batch and Randeep with the call at 4. And then Sat and Bick with your post-game coverage. We will be back for the final segment of the show. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Final segment of Canucks Talk for today, Tuesday edition of the show on a Canucks game day. They'll play the Buffalo Sabres, wrapping up their five-game road trip 
uh, in just a few hours here at 4 o'clock Pacific time. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And uh, as you would expect, lots of talk about What's next for the Canucks? Will they rebuild? How should that rebuild look? What should be the first moves? And all of that. And you can continue your thoughts coming in 650-650. And this unsigned text came in. And, of course, you know, we've talked plenty about the potential for trading Bo Horvat and why that looks like, if not a certainty, probably something close to a certainty at this point. This unsigned text comes in. Bo's not the problem. It's Besser, Pearson, Myers, OEL. Nobody's saying Bo Horvat is the reason that this team is struggling, right? Or at least not on this show, and I don't think really on this station or generally in the media. We get texts, people complaining about Bo Horvat and what he does as a captain and all of that, so I'm not going to say nobody is pinning the blame at him. But when I talk about the logic of a Bo Horvat trade, it has nothing to do with him somehow being at fault for what we've seen from the Canucks this year and over the previous few seasons. In fact, In some ways, it's just the opposite, right? The fact that he is a really good player and the fact that he is having a really good season only enforces the idea of trading him because it's going to ensure that you get a meaningful return. It's not about him as a player being insufficient or flawed in some way. It's about the fact that... In fact, it's quite the opposite. Exactly. It's like... It, it's because of the salary cap. It's because of his age. It's because of the other commitments they have. It's all, it's all factors external in large part to Bo Horvat but you still have to pay attention if, to those factors. If I'm selling a fun size candy bar and asking for $5, I'm going to have a tough time moving it on the open market, mm-hmm. right? If I'm selling a gold bar, <laughs> I'm going to have a much I'm going to be able to demand a much higher price. That's it. You got to start with the gold bars. Unfortunately, I'm like it, it is what it is. And then you got to go back into the ground and get some more. And I think just to conveniently put back into the ground in general, (laughs) you know, one of my pet peeves with with sports fandom, I won't even limit it to Canucks or hockey fandom, but just sports fandom is the, you know, keep your good players and trade your bad players. Right. And obviously, look, if, if you can get another team to really overvalue a player who's not that good, great, make that trade. But in general, it's a lot, lot more complicated than that. And in particular, when you're going into a rebuild, what that means is you're going to have to trade good players you're gonna to have to trade really good players because that's the position you've put yourself in and you've kind of explored all of the other avenues so look I know I've made this point before but I think it's worth making I don't want anyone to construe certainly from my end when I suggest trading Bo Horvat or recommending that the Canucks should trade Bo Horvat it is not a slight whatsoever on Bo Horvat's game or his performance with the Canucks it is just a reflection of where this team finds itself. Now, lots of thoughts coming in surrounding the idea of a Bo Horvat trade. This one uh, I thought was interesting from Saskatchewan Joe, who texts in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line, who says, when do they have the most leverage trading Bo Horvat? And, you know, we had talked about in the first segment, Drance, what is the the mysterious something that is going to happen that Jim Rutherford is going to do to, to get the player's attention? Could it be something as uh, as significant and dramatic as a Bo Horvat trade, the idea of when do you have the most leverage, 
I guess it would be in the lead up to the trade deadline, right? When there's theoretically more teams available, more you know, more teams have a better sense that less they're really money, less money owed to the player, less money owed to the player. More teams have a a better sense of hey, we're really contenders. We we know what our roster uh, needs are. I having think you said have to that, be careful. Having I mean, you have to be careful. Well, and here and here's the thing. Having said that. I don't think it's impossible to get a really good trade for Bo Horvat in the next eight weeks. Like, I don't think that's an impossibility, right? So theoretically, maybe you have the most leverage leading up to the trade deadline. But if you get a deal you really like, I don't think you have to wait right down to that last minute before you pull the trigger. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think the I think there's risk in waiting. And that's because it's rare that there's like good center options available to teams on the trade market ahead of the deadline. But this year, it's kind of a different story, right? You've got the Jonathan Taves situation looming over everything. He's got a full NMC. The Chicago Blackhawks will do well by him, right? They'll do right by him. He'll he'll get to choose his destination. It's a little bit like a Claude Giroux situation, right? Where mm-hmm. for some teams, like for some really stacked teams, you'd look at Taves and be like, if he chooses us, we can get him for cents on the dollar. Even if we think Bo Horvat's a better player, and he is now, right, obviously, uh, you know, we can probably pay um, a wholesale price for Jonathan Taves and add him to our third line for the playoffs. Like, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good to anybody, right? You've also got Ryan O'Reilly. If the Blues don't get this turned around, Ryan O'Reilly's expiring. Um that's another really attractive piece. I mean, can you imagine adding Ryan O'Reilly oh to your go- third line oh as a contending team? Yeah. Like, I mean, you want you want a ton of draws one and, and a former Selkie winner who's just about as hard on their stick as just as anyone in the league. And then, you know, Horvat's the 35 goal scorer who can punch up your power play. Uh, you know, you think about it from the perspective of a team like Denver who lost uh, the Colorado, of course, who lost Nazem Kadri. Like Nazem Kadri's a lefty who excels in the bumper on the penalty kill. <laughs> yeah, or sorry, on the power play. You know, like, can you think of a better replacement mm-hmm. than, than one of the best lefties who plays in the bumper on the power play in the league? Um, you know, so, but you have to wait those options. This is one year where there's actually decent center options available. Horvat's probably the one that costs the most and also probably has the, like, least championship pedigree. Even though he's sort of known as a big game player, that, you know... I mean, I don't, if the decision is to try and trade him, and I don't think the team's there yet, right? Well, sorry. The team publicly is saying they're not there yet, but their actions tell me something very different. (laughs) So, you know, if that's where we're going here, I don't think it's a bad call to jump the market at all in uh, in making a move there, particularly because it benefits you uh, with how this season has gone, especially should it continue uh, to make yourself worse in that manner. Well, and, and, you know, again, as we talked about in the first segment, if words are not going to convince anyone of the direction that this team is going to take, it's hard to send a more clear message than than executing that trade, right? And yeah, there would be some people who would be upset, but I think there'd be a lot of fans who would look at it and say, okay, we're actually seeing tangible moves in the direction of a rebuild, in the direction of making moves for the future benefit of this team. And that would communicate it much more strongly than, you know, a letter or a press conference uh, ever could. You know, your point about, or or, this has been a topic of discussion. um, I know Elliot Friedman, Rick Dollywell both reported it, that 
Bo Horvat and uh, Bo Horvat's camp and the Canucks had not had any contact, uh, despite Jim Rutherford and Patrick Elvin being in Toronto over the weekend. And I heard that Frank Saravelli on our station with Dan and Sat last night even added to that and said there was actually a meeting between Pat Morris and the Canucks uh, a few weeks ago and talking about another player. And then at some point, uh, Pat Morris or, or someone from his agency suggested, all right, should we move on to discuss Bo Horvat? And Frank's understanding was that the Canucks response was, uh, no, no, we don't need to talk about Bo Horvat right now. So you hear a little nugget like that and you do start to wonder, you know, what direction uh, that's ultimately going when there has been no sign of discussions between the two sides uh, up to this point of the season. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Jeffro takes in. Uh, if they trade Bo, it makes no sense to keep JT Miller. And, you know, we get we get a lot of questions about this, I would say, on a day-to-day basis, Drancer, right? And I know you've addressed this in the past as well. You know, can they trade JT? What are their options? How do you go about doing it? Does he have positive value? I'm not going to read all of them uh, from, the, uh, from the Dunbar Lumber text line right now because there's so many of them. I, to me, the bigger question beyond... You know, what does a JT Miller trade look like? Would teams be interested? Can you do it? How much do you have to retain? Do you have to take money back? All of those questions. The bigger question is just, would the team ever really consider that, given that they made a very, very big commitment to the player not a lot long ago, and it's one thing to trade a pending UFA, even if he is your captain, even if he is really good, like Bo Horvat, it's one thing to trade a pending UFA. We've all seen that happen lots before. It's another thing to trade a player that you just signed to a seven-year extension. So before we even, for me, before we even get to the idea of you know, what would a JT Miller trade look like, it's I, I don't really have a sense that that's going to be a realistic option in the near future. Yeah, I don't think I really think we're far away from the club reaching that yeah. conclusion. But I mean, for me anyway, you know, what are the top line items in in a demolition? Right, like if you're trying to really start something bigger picture in terms of resetting everything you've got going on, right? Entering a period where you're going to court some pain uh, with the future in mind. You know, I, I, it's not hard to figure out which long, expensive deals you should start with, right? I mean, it's just common sense. And those would be the priority moves, in my view. Should be the priority moves, in my view. Yeah, and uh, again, we'll, we'll see if if things actually get uh, to that spot. But uh, I don't know. I, it would just be such, a, such an admission of a mistake, and you so rarely, so rarely see anything like that uh, from, the, uh, from, from NHL teams, from sports teams in general. There's a reason you don't see that happen uh, right now or with any sort of regularity uh, around the league or, uh, or in other leagues, for that matter, as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Again, the smart alternative. Hit us up with your thoughts ahead of a Canucks game day when they will play the Buffalo Sabres. And what do you want to see happen? What do you want to see happen next? As we mentioned in the first segment, as I said, Jim Rutherford laid it out. Depending on how this road trip goes, the team is going to need to do something to get the players' attention. What do you want to see that something be and we also have lots of questions uh come in about um who's going to be the captain if Bo Horvat gets moved and to me that's just you can't be worried about that right now right like that's something that will sort itself out down the road I get that it's hard to trade your captain you call them side quests right like the coaching is a side quest thing there's there's a lot of kind of I don't want to say it's a distraction because the captaincy holds real weight and that's important but that's not something that can prevent you from 
making a really significant move for your franchise, potentially setting them on the right course by trading Bo Horvat. That's something that'll figure itself out down the road. There's a who knows, maybe maybe your next captain isn't even in the organization yet. We have no way of knowing, but that's very much a side consideration, a minor or tertiary consideration when you're talking about the next moves that have to happen with this team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, that this is what's so funny is the <laughs> <laughs> there's so much that's side quest now. There's so much. You know, I, I've been thinking a little bit about this. You know, one thing to note about management mistakes, and I think one thing that made capturing where this was headed in Vancouver difficult, right? And I don't know, I don't know as I reflect on my coverage, our conversations over the course of the past few years, Jamie, I like, I don't know if I, I don't know if we did a good enough job or I did, if I did anyway, did a good enough job sort of <laughs> sounding the alarm about the iceberg <laughs> in, in the crosshairs. You know, I, I mean, I talked about it. I, I like to think that I focused on it, but I don't know that it's hard to capture, I think, in real time, in part because so often when you're making these deals that slowly but surely add up, right, to a team with no value, most of them can be justified in the moment. And so often the moves involve the team that's making the mistake getting bigger name assets for smaller name assets or cap space yeah. or futures or things that will matter down the line, things that are indirect, things that are shapeless. And this is what's so corrosive about really short-sighted, poor management decisions. You know, you sign the JT Miller deal, for example, just to pull, pull that out as, a, as an example. And fans are like, this is exciting. I love watching JT Miller. And now I get to continue to watch JT Miller. That's a perfectly reasonable reaction. And when you come in and are talking about things like, well, the logic of this deal doesn't make sense for the Canucks like it made sense for the Calgary Flames to go in on Kadri. And also, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, the, the aging curve of various players, like some work out, but some do not, right? Like you're talking about concepts when you're discussing hockey, you're discussing a sport that feels very real to us, that feels emotional to us, that we connect with, um, that's authoritative in terms of a player's performance when we're watching it. But the downside risk is still there and ultimately decisive. Like some of the best moves are easy to hate in the moment, are easy to criticize in the moment, but over time turn out to be the right moves. Uh, you acquire Oliver Ekman Larson and Connor Garland for Louis Erickson, Antoine Roussel, and Jay Beagle, plus uh, uh, some draft picks. Like there's no faces going back to Arizona that are nearly as exciting as what's coming back in Oliver Ekman Larson and Connor Garland, right? So how easy is it to explain? Like everyone's gut reaction to that deal is, well, the Canucks got better, but it doesn't matter. Like they did, but they didn't. They really didn't, you know? So it's such a it's such a difficult thing to describe. Like how do you describe the missed opportunities? Like how do you describe that tonight when the Canucks play the Buffalo Sabres, right? There's going to be, you know, a player who was acquired for very little but extended the team's cap issues, right? Who loses a puck battle to a player that the Buffalo Sabres drafted in the second round as a result of trading a guy, right? And and amassing three picks. And they made two or, two or three of those second rounders, and this is the one that hit. 
And all of a sudden, he's beating this guy in a battle. Like, how do you explain absence in this context? This is something I've been wrestling with a lot. How do you explain the absence of homegrown players that the Canucks are facing every day? Like, every time you see a mistake being made, every time you see a penalty fail to be killed, it's like that could have been a face-off one or a, or a coverage hit mm-hmm. by like one of those guys, one of those picks that went for Andre Padan or one of those picks that went for Adam Clendenning or Lyndon Vay, right? Like a guy who now would be like an eight-year pro, maybe a defensive specialist. Maybe they don't even score that much. Maybe the fan base doesn't appreciate what they do, but those guys can help you win games, right? Same thing on the defense. You know, you trade enough fifth-round picks. Fifth-round pick, what's a fifth-round pick? They never hit. I'd way rather have the bird in hand. That's what the fans say after the team trades a fifth round pick and you're like, oh boy, I don't know about this, right? It's like, it's like, who cares? Fifth round picks, do you know what the chances of that hitting are? Sure, but if you trade five first fifth round picks, that's five fewer bullets in the chamber to have the Kevin Bieksa story, to have the Anna Hansen story, to have that actual piece on your team. The Canucks are just drowning in these ghosts, these absences, and it's so hard to capture that in the day-to-day as you're making these mistakes as the mistakes are accumulating into this tire fire that's now completely undeniable right that now no one can look away from as it burns and and i don't know how we get to that point so when i was ranting earlier like i'm done talking about the small stuff i'm done overreacting to a win streak i'm done you know uh, trying to be like well here's what they're getting in that guy that they traded a second for like no it's it's over it's done the big picture needs to be relentlessly focused on in part because the small stuff is so much more compelling and so much easier to sell. And that gives such a significant advantage to management teams making mistakes. I just think it's a corrosive impact and it, it, there's, like a, there's like an entropy to it that makes it really difficult to capture as it's happening. I think we're starting, well, we're seeing the absences, you say, on the on the NHL roster, right? And and you point out to those, you know, trades going way way back to kind of the early, uh, the early stages of the Jim Benning era, and you know how different moves might be positively impacting the team today. But I think what's really started to hit me even more clearly than it has recently, and I think from what I've seen a lot of fans as well, as we start to consider at least the possibility that a more full-scale legitimate rebuild is going to happen, you know, what's the first thing you do? Well, you look at the team's prospect pool, and that's where you're really noticing, as you say, this kind of, it's almost like, I think of it almost in a way as debt being built up, right? Like the team incurred debt, to put this team together by trading a first-round pick for J.T. Miller, by moving out the first-round pick in the OEL and Garland trade, second-round pick for Tyler Toffoli, and all of that. And then you look at the prospect pool, and yeah, over the last three drafts, they have one first-round pick and one second-round pick. (laughs) When you have that, when you have only that amount, right, well less than you're supposed to have of your high-profile, high-impact draft picks, it should not be a surprise whatsoever that your prospect pool all of a sudden looks like how it does. And I think that's just one manifestation. It's not even at the NHL level yet, but that's just one manifestation of kind of that buildup that you're talking about, how it cascades, and then it all kind of hits all at once. But even there, you know, who knows? Look, I'm not obviously you're, you're not expecting necessarily to have anyone from the 2022 draft contributing right now, but I don't know, from the 2020 draft, if you had a first round and a second round pick, 
yeah, maybe one of them absolutely could be contributing for you in a meaningful way at this point. And I think that absence is going to continue to be very keenly, keenly felt uh, over the next couple of years here because if the, <laughs> even if the team does start a rebuild, it's not as if you're going to – you know, it's easy to say trade all these guys and bring up your prospects. Well, they don't have that many prospects to plug into the lineup. No, there, there's no play the kids. There's no play the kids, except that Pod Coles and Hoaglander and Rathbone might be able to get in the lineup all at once. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's there's not much here. And and the problem is, is that everyone else around the Canucks have been making those picks. And even if they don't work out, the focus with which those teams have been accumulating pans out. So you think about the JT Miller pick that went to Tampa Bay and then on to New Jersey, right? The New Jersey Devils picked uh, Shakir Makhmadulidin, who's not in the league yet. And yet the fact that they were using and acquiring a first round pick, a late first to take a defenseman also tells you a lot about their overall approach. And now, you know, in addition to that kid who remains a good prospect, there's also Nemich. There's also Hughes. And in that time since, they also acquired Dougie Hamilton, Ryan Graves, and John Marino. <laughs> I mean, it speaks volumes. Even though, even though that pick may not have mattered in particular, the focus with which it was made also speaks to a variety of other moves that have created this wagon in Newark <laughs> that the Canucks certainly can't match. Frankly, not a lot of teams around the league can match. And where most of those fans, fans of that team, provided that that club can retain Jesper Bratt for a long time here, huh. you know, are, are probably looking forward to committing and sinking a decade of fun into watching. And I, I just want that for Canucks fans. So, I want that for myself. <laughs> it would be nice. People do, like, my friends and stuff will ask me, like, oh, you know, you, it must be tough for you guys at the station. It's like, no, we're still just coming on and talking about hockey. It's still really fun. It's still a great job. I still really like it. It'd be, it'd be better. It would be better to cover a really competitive team that has a chance of winning the Stanley Cup. It would be more fun to cover playoff games. There's certainly no doubt uh, about that. 650-650. I, I think I'd sigh less. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of comments about my size. Have my size really gone up? I think, as you said, you're, you're maybe um, maybe some of the uh, the weight of the of the road trip coming through a little bit, but also the weight of covering the Canucks. I think I think that's what's uh, that's what's going on. Yeah, there there have been some noticeable size today, but that's okay. It's uh, it's <laughs> it, it, it gives some insight into your emotional state right now, Drancer. I don't know. Yeah, have a and my and and my level of fatigue. Um, I want to talk really quickly. I please. Go read the interview that I did with uh, Anson Carter over at The Athletic. Um, Daniel Sedin really prominently shouted out Anson Carter. And I thought it was really notable when he did it because, you know, Henrik and Daniel spent some time deciding who would shout out who, right? And, like, Henrik shouted out Trent Klatt as an example. And, you know, it was a classic Henrik Sedin joke. Like, sorry that you spent two bad seasons teaching us how to play in the NHL, right? <laughs> it, was just, it, was, it was just a joke. Daniel, in contrast, said of Anson Carter that he taught them lessons that mattered for them as players and in life and empowered them to evaluate their own games outside of the thoughts of the coach. And I thought that was a fascinating response, particularly because it pretty closely matched a quote that Daniel had given me two weeks earlier when we were speaking in the lead up to the Hall of Fame uh, extravaganza. And so I reached out to Anson Carter and I thought his commentary recast, for me anyway, a fair bit of how his tenure has been remembered and should be regarded. And I really encourage you to go read that. I, I think it's an, a useful update in Canucks lore and a reminder to be a little bit skeptical 
of some of the master sort of narratives, the the main narratives that can emerge around players over time, particularly when that player uh, doesn't regularly engage with this market. And I really encourage you um, to go read that commentary with a with a skeptical eye uh, at theathletic.com. It's a good piece, good insight from Anson Carter to his time with the Sedins, his brief time with the Sedins, but as you said, obviously left an impact. You can find it, uh, as well as Drancer's other work, up at The Athletic right now. Reminder, puck drop coming up against the Buffalo Sabres, the Vancouver Canucks at 4 o'clock. Uh, Reach and Sat will have your pregame coverage starting at 3. They'll be on Sportsnet Pacific on TV at 3.30. And then Batch and Randeep have your call at 4. Bick and Sat with your postgame coverage. And we, of course, will be back tomorrow to break it all down. We will see what the fallout of anything is uh, following the conclusion of this five-game road trip for the Vancouver Canucks. We'll be back tomorrow. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650.